Welcome to So You Want to Change the World, where we speak with millennials asking hard questions as they work towards social justice. Each episode, we interview an alum of the Thinking Beyond Borders programs, where students develop their capacities to create meaningful change. I'm your host, Robin Pendoli. In this episode, grappling with privilege in global health work. I first came to know Emily Ausubel in 2008 when she was an applicant and then a student in our very first Global Gap Year program at Thinking Beyond Borders. In the years since, she's completed an undergraduate degree in government and legal studies at Bowdoin College and has been working in the field of international development with a particular focus in public health. Emily Ausubel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So why why public health? What are the origins of, of that for you? Yeah, so I kind of tell this as my like cliched beginning to being interested in public health. I read Tracy Kidder's book, Mountains Bound Mountains, about Paul Farmer and his organization, Partners in Health. And I, I actually read it the summer before my senior year in high school. And I had just spent the previous two months volunteering in rural town in the Dominican Republic with the Amigos program, Amigos de las Americas. And the work that I was doing didn't really directly have to do with public health, but I had this experience living in rural Dominican Republic, and then I read Paul Farmer's book, and that really sparked an interest in public health that I kind of had just resting in my mind as I was finishing up high school and looking at colleges. Then when I found out about TBB and uh, ended up on the Thinking Beyond Borders Global Gap Year, we also had a unit on public health, and that was my favorite unit. I loved the work that we did with health workers going around, visiting patients, really getting to talk to people and provide them with exactly what they needed and, and bring the services to them. I thought that was a really important aspect of public health work. And all of these exposures were just kind of initial exposures into this into this interest area. And actually in college, I, I didn't really focus as much on public health. I took one global health course, but uh, when I was looking for jobs after graduating, I, I kind of came back to health. And I think part of that interest, I think there's something to me that's very much universal about the desire to have, uh, to lead a healthy life. And I felt pretty confident in pursuing a career that I could feel proud of and, and happy in by pursuing that in pursuing a career in public health. Tell, tell me more about that. What are some of the factors yeah. that go into that? Um, in terms of being happy and fulfilled and yeah and I think (laughs) I'd actually um, you know where I am in my thoughts about this right now are actually a little bit more nuanced than when I started my career in public health and I actually have not been working in public health for the past year not necessarily as a specific decision to get out of it just kind of by how everything aligned I think healthiness and leading a healthy life are really foundational to being successful in a lot of other ways. I mean, you think about issues of poverty and disempowerment that many people around the world experience every day. Health is a huge factor in that. And especially having worked now in public health and really seen what this looks like in practice, the amount of time and the amount of money that people have to spend seeking services for their health issues that most of the time are completely preventable. It's a huge burden and I was excited to be 
part of work that was addressing that and, and helping people be able to be healthy and not have to worry about those issues and be able to focus on other parts of their life that, that can bring them fulfillment. So that, as a kind of pursuit, I've found that to be really important. Tell me a little bit about your work in international development over the last few years. What have you been doing and what has your day-to-day been like in some of those different positions? Sure. So when I graduated from college in 2013, I first started working pretty soon after graduating at an organization called Management Sciences for Health, which is a pretty large international health organization that works on a whole array of different health issues, family planning, maternal and child health, HIV and AIDS, and all of the above, in addition to a lot more kind of what the public health sphere calls health system strengthening work in terms of actually supporting governments around the world and improving their health systems. So that could be about leadership in the government. It could be about pharmaceutical management and ordering drugs, etc. So I started in the business development department as a business development coordinator. So this was really, this was a desk job. Yeah, a lot of it was really a desk (laughs) job. Um, It's actually kind of interesting, like this department actually doesn't really, or that department didn't really have entry level jobs, but this was the most entry level job that they had. But actually I got a lot more responsibility that was more kind of meaty in terms of doing some of the actual writing of portions of the grant proposals, writing up performance reports on our previous projects to show the donor you know, what we had done in the past and helping with organizing and running the technical strategy meetings with the technical staff from the organization. So you're right, at the beginning, it was, a, it was a little bit more of a desk job. And it, okay, technically, I was at a desk all day long, <laughs> every day. So <laughs> it was a desk job. But in terms in, of kind in of Cambridge, Massachusetts, right? I mean, it, Cambridge, it, it, yeah. you're not out in the field. This is this is really a US based desk job. That's right. Yes. Yeah. And after your time there, what, what happened next? What, what were the next opportunities that you took advantage of? I ended up finding out about an organization, an opportunity called Global Health Corps. And Global Health Corps funds one-year fellowships for about 150 young professionals under the age of 30 who are both from the United States and from other countries around the world to work at, in public health organizations in several countries in Africa and then in the United States. So I applied and I was awarded a fellowship to work at a pediatric HIV and AIDS organization in Kampala, Uganda for a year as a Global Health Corps fellow. And I ended up actually having a pretty similar role as to what I had at MSH. I was doing grant writing and fundraising for the organization there. A desk job, but on the other side of the world. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think in some ways I was a little bit naive. I was like, oh, I'm going to go over and I'm going to live in Uganda and I'm really going to be exposed to what public health work looks like on the ground. And I got there and I definitely had more opportunities to interact with the people who were actually directly providing the services and be part, like sit in the same office as them and talk to them about the grants that I was writing and the programs I was helping design. But you're right, I was still in an office in the Capitol. I still absolutely believe in public health work. I just think I have, you know, some 
anxieties about the way that international health as kind of an industry functions today. And, and we might talk about that more in detail in a little bit, but I'll just give that as well, an initial explanation. I mean, let's dive in now. Like okay. Just listening to the way you've told your story so far, it, it sounds as though you feel like there's a disconnect between the, the international industry of public health and actually meeting the real on the ground needs of individuals and families and communities. Is that, is that part of it? And what does that disconnect look like and feel like? There, there is a disconnect in a lot of different ways. I think one way is in terms of these large organizations like MSH where I worked, um, which by the way, I didn't even know organizations like that existed until I started working at MSH. I kind of thought that all development work happened by like grassroots organizations. I didn't understand how, just how large USAID's impact was and the US government's impact was in terms of funding international development and health projects specifically abroad. And I think in many and ways- the, And that the, that funding goes primarily to large- Yes. L- large American, providers, right? Yeah, large providers that are located, headquartered in the United States. And I, I won't get into all the nitty gritties about funding, but you know, having worked in the development and, and seen how budgets are prepared, it, it it's a lot about just the cost of sending a consultant to come from an organization like MSH and provide two weeks of technical support in Uganda or wherever it is. It's astronomical. And when I was in Uganda working for a Ugandan organization, they had those technical people there already. And that's not to say that the staff in the U.S. don't have really important expertise to offer, but there are a lot of ways in which I think the whole system has kind of been structured for so many years that it's not necessarily questioned anymore why you would spend so much money sending a technical expert across halfway across the world when you could probably find one of those experts in that country. That's just one example. But I think what ends up happening is the big issue that I've seen is also this tension between large-scale work and grassroots on the ground, kind of community-driven work. And organizations like MSH in a lot of ways are really talking about changing systems. And so the work that they do, like I was talking about earlier, more about empowering and training government leaders or ministries of health or health workers who work in public hospitals or public health institutions to improve the way that they do their work, whether that's actually providing the medical services according to WHO, like World Health Organization guidelines, or managing their finances better. There's a whole range of the way that that work happens. And when you're looking really big scale like that, you may or may not end up really being attuned to the needs of individual people in any given community, in any given country. Can you give an example? I mean, are there things that you saw during your time in either in South Africa with Thinking Beyond Borders or in Uganda that that you can think of an example of when that might have been the case? That's a really good question. I'll give one example that I think fits this kind of well. So when I was at Baylor, Uganda, The way that Global Health Corps works, just to give a tiny background, each organization has a fellow from the country that that organization works in, and then they have a foreign fellow. So I was working at Baylor, Uganda, and there was also a Ugandan man also as a fellow at Baylor, Uganda, and his role was in gender mainstreaming, which is actually a specific interest of mine, but I couldn't apply to that job because it was for the Ugandan nationals, um, which is, I think, actually a really good thing. But... 
I had a lot of conversations with my co-fellow, A.B., about gender and the role that gender plays in health and specifically in Uganda and related to the HIV and AIDS programming that Baylor Uganda was providing in, in Uganda. And one of the things that he told me about that really kind of surprised me was that so many U.S. government-funded, foreign-funded health programs focus so much on women and children and talk about the need to cater services to women and children to address the disparate ways that um, women and children in experience health and the ways in which health issues disproportionately affect women, which is real. But interestingly, in Uganda, a lot of men AB told me, ended up feeling like their interests weren't being taken into account in any way and that with all of these services being so targeted at women, there wasn't any room for them to seek services themselves. And that actually can be really dangerous because half of the population in the country is male and when you're thinking about a health issue like HIV and AIDS if those if men aren't feeling like they can access services and their access their services being provided specifically for them for HIV and AIDS prevention that's a huge amount of people that you are not reaching with your services as important as it is to focus on women and have those services accessible to to them so that's just one example of ways in which i think the international community or even just anybody working at an organization thinking, how can we reach the women? Like, these are the people who need to be getting these services. These are the primary care providers for children. They are the ones who can transmit HIV to their, through, to their babies. But you can sometimes end up completely overlooking another need that's really important as well. How are we defining development? Is it about hitting key indicators, economic indicators around maternal health or, or infant mortality or um, child literacy or the number of, of girls that are going to school as compared to, you know, are, are there indicators we should be looking at about whether there's equity within families? And what does it mean to pursue equity within families? Does it mean to support women and girls who historically and even currently often are forgotten by the system? Or does it mean to approach the entire family differently? Absolutely. And I think Gosh, this is so hard because I think about how the Millennium Development Goals, how many were there, eight, turned into the yeah. Sustainable Development Goals, which are 17, which each have like eight components to them. And actually, I don't know the exact number, but I know that gender is a part of the Sustainable Development Goals. And there's more about exactly what you're talking about in terms of looking at equity within a family. And I think, yeah, I think a lot of times people look at the word gender and they think women Right, and that's important, but it's also uh, not the whole picture. And I think your whole point about how we define development, on the one hand, I, I don't think any Ugandan would say, you know, we don't want improved health services, we don't want improved education for our children. But I do think there is a top down, in some ways, imposition of development goals from the international community, whoever that is, or whoever sits on the committees designing the priorities for international cooperation in achieving these goals. And it, it all ends up becoming very kind of formulaic and, and like you were saying about hitting the indicators. And that's important for, for measuring success. And I understand that and I, and I think it's valid and important. But I also do wonder sometimes how much we get caught up in these 
big sweeping ideas that may or may not actually reflect what any individual person decides they need for their own personal development as a as a person as opposed to their country's development and statistics. So you're someone who has been steeped in in studying policy. You you got an undergraduate in, in government and legal studies at, at Bowdoin. You're this fall you're starting at the Kennedy School at Harvard a, a master's in public policy. How do you keep the human aspect of of your work balanced with the, this expertise in policy and the economic indicators and all of the that other framework for thinking about development? Yeah, I mean, I think, and this is, again, kind of the tension that I was talking about earlier in terms of large-scale versus small-scale. Working at an organization like MSH was really exciting because we were when our programs were successful, we were impacting millions of people. And actually, Baylor Uganda has uh, not the same, quite the same scope and scale of impact, but also was a large organization in Uganda and affected many people. And knowing that you can be part of kind of systemic change is, I think, is, is exciting and I think it's important. And sometimes I look at smaller organizations and I wonder, even if the quality of their work is really is really high, how how can you kind of bring that to the masses? And of course, that's the whole idea of scaling up your intervention. And what the exact problem is with that is oftentimes the human component ends up taken out. And I realize I'm not giving an actual solution because I think in some ways I, I don't really have the right answer. I think for me, the thing that I've realized, like being involved especially in the proposal writing process, which is directly linked to the program design process, really intentionally including the perspectives and the direct voices of the people who are going to be benefiting from the programs, I think is crucial. And as much as I've talked about MSH as being the like large US-based organization, they do do that. And they have staff in country and they interview health workers, they interview patients, they interview ministers of health and figure out what would this actually look like to implement. And I think that's at least the beginning. That's at least where you have to start being really intentional about bringing those voices into the conversation because I would never have thought of the gender mainstreaming ideas that my co-fellow AB brought in to our work on my own and part of that was because I'm a woman and he was also talking about men's perspectives and a big part of that was because I'm American and he was talking about the Ugandan perspective and really making sure that that's there is is really important and not getting too caught up in all of the indicators and the guidelines. And that's, I think, one of the big challenges is balancing balancing all of those different demands. I, you know, listening to that, I, I find it particularly interesting because when we talked recently, you shared that in your undergraduate, stepping into women and women's issues in particular was an important experience for you. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, thinking about, I just think about you as someone who's out trying to make a difference in the world and that you, like all of us, you have an agenda for what that looks like, but that you were confronted with a challenge to that agenda by somebody else you respected in Uganda who was also trying to make the world better. Absolutely. 
I'm challenged every day and I really welcome that challenge. I actually had, I was challenged today in my work. I work at an organization that mostly works with Vietnamese immigrants and refugees in Boston, but broadly serves low-income communities, which are primarily communities of color in this neighborhood. Um, and I'm white. And I won't go into details about exactly what happened, but basically one of my colleagues came up to me today and told me that she was a little bit frustrated in the way that I had handled the situation with one of my other white colleagues. And she gave her perspective. And a big part of it was about the fact that we hadn't gone to our other colleagues for input. It was uncomfortable, but also like so important to have that feedback and something that I think about a lot and am really, I don't know if self-conscious is the right word, but I guess I'm partly self-conscious of it and also just try to be conscientious of, of my race and my privilege and how that plays into the work that I do and the ways that it affects the decisions that I make in ways that I don't even understand until somebody points them out to me. So that was a really important experience that I had in America, but also among a community that I don't directly represent. So that, I mean, that consciousness of privilege or the, the pursuit of consciousness of our privilege is really important in our work, right? For, for people who want the world to be more equitable and just. But I also hear you talking about the process of receiving feedback um, that can be hard. One of the things that strikes me is that your generation, that that um, millennial generation, is often critiqued for not being able to receive feedback effectively. What what do you try to do in your process when you hear critical feedback like that, particularly around things that are so sensitive, like uh, around issues of privilege? I think it's hard. I think the automatic response is to defend yourself. And I think it's important sometimes to explain where you came from in your thought process. That can be an important part of reaching common ground with somebody. But I think trying hard not to just jump to the defense is really important because then it feels like a serious confrontation. And, and like the conversation that I had today was tense, but at the end was like really amicable. And I, I don't know if I handled it perfectly, but... I think it could have ended a lot worse. And I think being showing that you're open to, to receiving that. And I actually also, I said, okay, I want to set up a meeting right now. And I wrote an email to other people and we set up the meeting to further this conversation. And, and I think demonstrating a willingness to listen and be respectful and um, not just defend yourself and your actions is at least the first step in managing those kinds of situations well. I think that's a really important set of skills to develop and to continue to hone. I mean, one of the things that we talk about at Thinking Beyond Borders as a team is, uh, and as, as the leader of our team, I always make clear to folks when they, when they join our team that their primary responsibility every day beyond you know, the health and safety of, of each other and the students is to learn. It, it, you know, is to, to be humble and to be inquisitive and to learn. And that that learning process is really hard, <laughs> particularly when we're taking yeah. on these tough issues that aren't just tough in society, but they're tough within our hearts and, and, you know, within our passions. Yeah. And I think part of what happened in this situation at work recently was something had to get done and we didn't have a set process for how it needed to get done. And so I just did it. And there was this sense of urgency that kind of overrode 
the, the need to reflect. And I think that is something that can also be like a, a real source of conflict in terms of just like getting your job done. And uh, if you just looked at that, like I, I got what needed to get done, done. If, like efficiently and quickly, but I didn't do it in the way that it needed to happen in terms of like bringing other people's feedback into the process. And it's really hard if you don't have the time or you think you don't have the time or you haven't created space or time to bring that process in, then you end up in that situation over and over again, just rushing into decisions because you need to and not specifically putting in a lot of time for reflection and it can make things feel inefficient if you spend three weeks talking about it before you do it but it can end up being really valuable at the end of the day to have to have that process yeah this this feels really related to what you were saying earlier about the the tension between scope and scale when we're talking about development work, you know, do we do we go for the expeditious? We're gonna we're gonna change the whole system uh, and touch millions and millions of lives, and we may lose some of those key humanizing factors of the that approach to development. Or do we go the slow, localized, uh, very focused on people and their lived experience, and recognize that we may not touch millions of lives; we may touch lives in the hundreds or the thousands. Right. And I also think like a big issue related to this is the what what I think a lot of people call, but we call in development, like monitoring and evaluation of your programs. Right. And do you take the time to step back and reflect on whether or not you've actually been having the impact that you need to be having or whether that's even the impact you should be having? I think in some ways, I actually think the development sector does this better so like I currently work at a small or medium-sized nonprofit that does local community development work in the U.S. And most of our grant funding is from foundations and we get one-year grants. And that means that we have one year to just use their money the way that we said we were going to, but there's no built-in process for long-term growth or learning. And we have to do that internally with piecemeal grants that we may or may not get from people to continue the work that we do. And the international development sector, I think, has done a better job with some of this where actually most of the programs are four or five years and and there's actually more time for learning in that process. And the big question is just whether it actually happens. There's time for it, and but it's also maybe easier said than done. It's easier to just continue doing things the way you've been doing them instead of really stopping and saying, hold on a second, this isn't working. We might need to completely rewrite our entire conceptual framework like it might not even be as simple as we should just work in those communities or with this age group instead it could be really completely different design of what you're doing and I think you have to really be willing to be really reflective and actually make those changes that need to happen Um, and I do think that even though a lot of donors are interested in in learning and growth and reflection it realistically, it just doesn't happen with the restrictions that you have on on how you do this work and how you move forward with it year to year. So also change usually doesn't even happen in four years or five years. It happens in generations. And I think that's the other big thing is like, how do you even know how long to do something until you kind of give up on it as not working or you call it successful? There can sometimes be immediate 
what looks like immediate success and then it tapers off. And, and that's a, a huge challenge in, in all of this work. Are there places that you find hope? Um, yeah, I mean, definitely. I think, I mean, honestly, like being part of a group like Global Health Corps has been, has been really cool because the community is so international. Half of the fellows in the African countries are African. They're from those countries. And half of the fellows that serve in America are from other countries all over the world. And so being a bit more exposed to initiatives that are actually driven by people from other countries has also, I think it has given me a lot of hope. It also gives me a little anxiety because that's not me. And that's, in a lot of ways, I think that the way it should be, but it also then leaves me questioning kind of, you know, where do I end up? Um, I wrote a whole blog post for Global Health Corps about this. Um, Where do I fit in? But yeah, I mean, I think like I recently was asked by a couple Ugandan friends from Global Health Corps to join them in starting an organization in Uganda. But the whole thing was really masterminded by this group of, of three young Ugandan health professionals who wanted to address an issue in their country and their communities. And they got the seed funding to start this organization. And, and that kind of work is, is really exciting for me, I think, and, and shows how this kind of work being international development and health work is, is being formed in a lot of new ways in, in recent years in terms of being driven by people from the countries that, you know, historically American organizations go in and work in. Um, and now it's really being driven a lot of ways by Ugandans or, or whoever it is. And that's, that's cool for me to see. So do you think there's a role for Americans to work internationally in international development or should we be working domestically? You know, I mean, I both. I think both. I really do, actually. I think it's a constant challenge for all the reasons we've talked about in terms of recognizing cultures that you're not a part of or recognizing the systems that Americans have in our place here that may or may not be applicable to other countries. But I actually do think that there still is a role for Americans working in other countries, just as there is a role for other people from outside of the United States to come and work here. And, and again, that's something that I thought Global Health Corps did really well because we didn't, it wasn't just like, let's send Americans to other countries. It was also, let's bring other people into the United States and have them work full time at health organizations here and give their perspective. And I think people as individuals have things to offer expertise and insight and ideas regardless of where they're from or where they're working and i think the challenge is just making sure that that is happening in a responsible way and in a respectful way and in a way that still allows for the voices and actual like physical leadership of people from other countries as well You've been talking a lot about about process and about consciousness and you know trying to be critically conscious as you move forward in your work. Are, are there thinkers out there or are there resources that you try to tap into on a regular basis that really continue to support you and challenge you in in that critical reflection? I mean, I think the conversation from from work today is a is a good example in terms of, working in diverse environments and I'm excited to be joining a diverse graduate program and I think surrounding myself with peers who will challenge me has been a big part of that. When I was in Uganda they were having a presidential election 
almost exactly a year before our presidential election, our most recent presidential election. But in Uganda, the same man has been in power now for 31 or 32 years. And I was talking with my peers at work, all, all Ugandan, about the election and whether they were going to vote. And they were kind of uh, what seemed like a little bit apathetic about it. Many of them, not all of them, many of them, though, said, why would I vote? It's rigged anyway. There's no point. Um, and actually, the, the challenger for the sitting president was pretty popular. And a lot of people thought he actually could win the election. And I was kind of like, frustrated with my, with my peers who didn't feel empowered to go out and vote and didn't feel like they had a voice and were kind of not... In my from what I was reading, like weren't taking any agency in the in the political reality of their country, and um, my co-fellow AV, who I have so much appreciation for, he was like, "Well, Emily, you never lived through a civil war. Like, you don't know what it's like to be here, and like the the background of that is." Like Museveni is often praised for bringing peace to the country. Museveni is the current president of Uganda. And I think just have like being corrected <laughs> in this kind of self-righteous perspective that I was bringing to the conversation and having like kind of having my privilege be thrown in my face and, and being rem reminded that like I'm not from there and I can't speak on behalf of people and talk about why they're making the decisions that they're making. That was a really impactful moment for me in terms of feeling like I can be responsible with the voice that I have and the work that I do and like the, the passion that I have for all of this. I, you know, I believe in democracy and participating in civic duties, but I think, you know, having that conversation made me think about what it means to speak on behalf of other people and more broadly what it, what it means to do the work that I do responsibly and not kind of make assumptions about the people that I work with or, or on behalf of. So at the end of every episode, we ask the folks that we're, we're interviewing the same question. What's the most important question you're asking right now? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm kind of having two levels of questions. Maybe I'm cheating. <laughs> you can that. cheat. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> because I think, you know, as I'm about to start graduate school in um, a little less than six weeks. And so I think my like my personal question is is kind of where do I want to go next and, and how do I want to spend the next two years building my knowledge and expertise um, and challenging myself to think about what that next step is for me. And, and that's kind of my big question. And what that is really kind of hinging on for me is where do I think that I can have a positive impact? And I haven't talked too much about it, but one of my big passions is women's rights and women's empowerment. And that is pretty broad still. And I'm trying to think about in what ways can I have an impact in that sphere and how can I kind of find my place in, in that effort? And I think that relates to the bigger question, which is what we were just talking about, which is how do we even know what the ultimate goals are and whether, you know, specifically in the field of international development that I, that I was working in for a while and do think I'd like to continue working in. But my big question is, like, is this sector really going in the right direction and do I want to be a part of it? Hmm. Um, that might be like five questions. <laughs> I <laughs> well, have all the questions. <laughs> in, in that last one, it sounds like 
I, I hate to do this, but it sounds like you're asking the question of what is development? Uh, I am absolutely <laughs> asking the question, what is development? I think you guys sent out an alumni survey recently and asked it to us again, and I got so stumped, I'm not sure I submitted the survey. <laughs> I'm, still, I'm still figuring it out. I'm still figuring it out. Um, and I ask myself that most days, probably. <laughs> all, of the, all of the alumni who are listening know what that question means, but, but for the folks in our audience who aren't as familiar with our programs, that, that question of what is development is fundamental to our curriculum, and it's the first question we ask at the beginning of the program. It's the last one we ask at, at, in the last seminar, and it's not surprising maybe to hear you're still grappling with it, even, yeah. even at this stage of your education and career. Emily, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you so much. As always, be sure to check out other episodes of the So You Want to Change the World podcast to hear more about the incredible social impact of our Thinking Beyond Borders alumni. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. You can also find more information and links to resources mentioned in this episode on our website at thinkingbeyondborders.org slash podcast. Special thanks to Julia Jones, who produced and edited this episode. Thanks for listening.